All right, good morning, West Park. If you will, please turn with me back to the passage that was read for us, Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 47. And um, I did this actually the last time I spoke last month. I have to apologize again. Uh, I'm clearly not used to living in Tennessee in the fall because my throat is trying to kill me. And so, uh, yeah, maybe say a little prayer for me right now because I'm feeling it this morning. And so uh, maybe a little bit shorter than usual. But, um, yeah, so hopefully I'll adjust to that soon. But um, while you're turning... Uh, to the passage, Uh, let me start by telling you about an experiment that I read about this week. Um, Happened in the 50s at Johns Hopkins University, and let me say up front, uh, the experiment was awful, unbelievably cruel, just horrible. Um, But it's it's really interesting when you you hear about the results. So a, a scientist, for whatever reason, decided that he wanted to see how long rats could swim for. So how do you do that? You put rats in a tub, and you back away, and you hit the timer, and then you just see what happens. And uh, many of them died within minutes, which is, which is horrible. Um, but here's why I tell you this, because it was so interesting. He did this, and then he tweaked the experiment slightly and introduced, introduced a new element. Every few minutes, as the, the rats were, were getting tired, he would lift them out of the tub, just for a little while, let them catch their breath, and then he put them back in. And he just kept doing this, lifting them out, put them back in. And here's what he found. The ones who were lifted out of the tub actually swam hundreds of times longer than the ones who were put in and just left alone. And here's what he decided. Here's what he decided. It wasn't the rats that made the difference here. It wasn't that some rats are just better at swimming. What he decided was that this experiment proved that hope is a really powerful thing. The rats that had hope could keep going. The rats that didn't, they couldn't. And I tell you about that awful experiment because I want to make an argument this morning that Christianity provides the best reason to just keep swimming. We're going to see in our passage that Jesus provides a true hope that surpasses all others. And so before we dive into this passage, to fully understand it, we have to have some background information. Because I'm sure you felt like I did on Monday when I first opened this thing, as Dom was reading it, and you were like, what in the world does this mean, right? What's happening? So let me give you some background information. Here's where we've been. Remember this, a couple weeks ago, we heard about Jesus riding triumphantly into Jerusalem. And since he got there, he has been poking the bear, Right? He has been poking the bear. He cleanses the temple, and then he publicly tells this parable of the wicked tenants that the religious leaders know is about them. We heard about that last week. That story is like the equivalent of going up to a hornet's nest and taking a baseball bat to it. It's got everyone riled up. Right? And so Jesus is a marked man. Things are getting real. The Jewish leaders, they want him dead. But here's the problem. They can't just kill him. Because first of all, Jesus is popular among the people. They can't just kill him. They like him. But also, it's illegal. Because only Rome had the power to practice capital punishment. So here's what they have to do. They have to entrap Jesus. They have to get him to say something that will make the people turn on him and make Rome want to kill him. And so that's why they're coming to him with questions. One after the other trying to entrap him. And so last week we saw, you may remember, 
that the religious leader sent spies in who came to Jesus with a very loaded question about paying taxes to Caesar. And he hits them with some theological jiu-jitsu and just shuts them up, right? Like he just, he gives them with the perfect answer. And so now it's next man up. The Sadducees are up to the plate. And so before we get into the passage, let me tell you who the Sadducees are. The Sadducees were wealthy, well-educated priests. And so just like the Pharisees, they were religious leaders of Jesus' day. But in many ways, they were the complete opposite of the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they followed the whole Old Testament law plus some. But the Sadducees, they only followed the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They thought that's all that was inspired by God. And so this led them, them to some interesting theological beliefs. Most importantly for this morning, they didn't believe in an afterlife. If you ask a Sadducee, you live here, you die, and then you're done. Okay? That's the Sadducees' beliefs here. You live here, you die, and then you're done. One other thing about this group, I heard it said that your eschatology shapes your ethics. Okay? What you believe about the life to come shapes how you live here today. Well, how would you anticipate that the Sadducees would live thinking this, all there, this is all there is? They were known as hedonists, right? Getting everything they possibly can out of this life because that's all there is, which kind of explains why they're so wealthy. There's no heaven to put treasures in, right? So they're keeping it all here. That's why they're so powerful. So that's who the Sadducees are. Keep that in mind, and now let's study the passage. And so I'm just going to take it a little section at a time. Okay, so I'll read some verses talk about it, and then we'll march through it. Let's start with verses 27 through 33. It says this. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers... The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Okay, let's stop there. So the Sadducees come to Jesus with a question, and it's a really odd question, right? It is a really odd question. But at the, at the core of it, they're trying to prove that there's no afterlife. And so they're bringing up something called leveret marriage. You can read about this in Deuteronomy 25. Just a warning, this is one of those passages that you come to in your Bible reading plan, and you're like, what in the world is this, right? What in the world is this? But here's, here's what I need to show you. This law, though it seems really weird in our culture, was actually really merciful when it was written. Here's what we need to see. In an ancient patriarchal culture, if a woman's husband died before she had children, she was put in a very difficult spot. Because, first of all, she couldn't go get a job. Second, she didn't have children to care for her. And third, because she had already been married, it was unlikely that she would find anyone else to marry her. That's a tough spot, right? That's a tough spot if you're a widow in this culture. And so what leveret marriage is, is Moses in this law says... That if this happened, if this happened, the brother of her husband had to step in and marry her 
so that they, can, can, they could protect the family line, right? So they could protect her, so that they could protect the family, okay? So that's how it worked. The brother then steps in and marries her, and any kids they have are actually the brother who died. It's, it's, it's weird. It sounds weird, right? It sounds weird. But you need to see, in, in, this, in this culture that they're in, in this, as they're wandering around the desert and everything's trying to kill them, it makes sense, right? It makes sense. It, it's, a, it's a merciful thing to try to protect these women in, these culture, in this culture. Well, the Sadducees latch onto this, and they try to use it to prove that there's no afterlife. And so they say, okay, so what happens if a man dies and a woman doesn't have children, and so she marries his brother? And this happens seven times, okay? Seven times. Seven deaths, no kids. Who will she be married to in the resurrection? Now, here's the first thing I have to say studying this. I've watched a lot of true crime documentaries in my life. <laughs> Someone check this woman, right? Like, I mean, you know, like, 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 mer- like, I mean, death number four, you go ask, you start asking questions, right? Okay? But, but this goes to show just how crazy this is and what the Sadducees are doing, okay? They're going and they are trying to make a slam dunk argument on Jesus, so they don't, they could have just said one death, but they say seven. And then can't you picture them just smug, just like, got him, right? Got him. They have proved that there is no afterlife. And let me stop for a second, because it's easy to make fun of the Sadducees. It's easy to use them as a punching bag. But here's something that I've really been convicted about this week. It's easy to hate on them, but if I'm honest, I often live like one. I often live like one. Here's what I mean. You know, my words say otherwise. My beliefs say otherwise. I preach otherwise. But there are many days that I wake up and I live like this life is all there is. Anyone else? Right? Am I the only one? Okay. I live like this life is all there is. I live trying to get everything that I possibly can out of this life and acting like it's never going to end. <laughs> it's never going to end. Here's how, here's how John Calvin said it. He said, We undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life. But the moment we turn away from the sight, the thought of our own perpetuity remains fixed in our minds. His point is that for many of us, death is an abstraction. We technically know that we will die. And as Christians, we believe that this isn't all there is. But if you looked at our lives, they actually say otherwise. I know that's true for me. We squeeze every drop we can out of this life. We live like the Sadducees. And unfortunately, this has made some Christians, who should be the most hopeful people in the world, utterly hopeless. Utterly hopeless. If that's you this morning, I hope Jesus' words will give you hope. Let's look at them. Verses 34 through 36. It said, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So Jesus tells the Sadducees that their logic is flawed because there's no marriage as we think of it in the resurrection. And some of y'all are saying, praise God. Great. No, just kidding. (laughs) But to be honest with you, I, I, when I read this, maybe you felt this, when I read this passage this week and started studying it, I was bummed. 
right? Like I was, I mean, I've only been married six years, but like, I like Allie. Like, I think she's pretty cool. Like, I, I, I enjoy being married to her. I actually like her more than I did six years ago, right? And I know we have a lot more hard things to come, but I like being married to her. And so I was a little bit bummed, but here's what I found this week, and I'm so glad I got the chance to study this. Actually, what Jesus says here, it is brimming with hope. Let me show you. Let me point out two things. Here's the first thing we see here. The joys of this life are appetizers pointing us to the feast of heaven. The joys of this life are appetizers pointing us to the feast of heaven. So Jesus responds emphatically to the Sadducees that there is, in fact, a resurrection. There is, in fact, the hope of a resurrection. What the Sadducees don't know is that very soon, Jesus himself will resurrect. Jesus himself will defeat death, and that's going to point us to the ultimate resurrection to come. When everything will be made new, when Christians will receive resurrection bodies and live on a renewed earth no longer tainted by sin. That's our hope. That's our hope to come. But Jesus says, in the resurrection, we won't be married. We won't be married. And here's what we need to see. We have to actually believe this and not just say we believe it. Heaven will be better than this life, not worse. I don't act a lot like I actually believe that, but heaven will be better than this life, not worse. God won't take anything from us that he won't replace with something so much better. He may take the appetizer, but he's replacing it with filet mignon. He's replacing it with filet mignon, and marriage is a great example of this. Think about this. The Bible tells us that marriage in its best form is an image of Christ and his church. It's a signpost pointing us to what's to come. And so in the resurrection, we won't need the image anymore because we'll have the real thing. We will be with Jesus. Can you think about this? I mean, look, if, if, this doesn't, if you're a Christian and this doesn't make you excited, you need to start asking yourself some questions, okay? Picture seeing Jesus face to face. The one you love most. Picture that day. We get that, okay? Your marriage is pointing you to that when you will be with Jesus face to face. And not only that, it actually, this is awesome. I truly believe that my relationship with Allie will be better in the resurrection. My relationship with her will be better because we will experience even greater intimacy And even greater love than we do now because our sin will be gone. Even now we are married and we are sinners. I mean, we have a wonderful marriage, but I'm an idiot, right? And that that makes it hard sometimes, okay? But one day we will be in the resurrection together and we will no longer be tainted by sin. That won't be a problem anymore. So our intimacy will only grow. (laughs) That's good news, isn't it? And we can apply that to all the good things we experience in this life. They're good, but they're tainted by sin. So heaven is better than even the best things of this life. And let me point out, I told you my tendency is to live like a Sadducee. Try to get everything I can out of this life. Because we think that that's the way to live, right? That's the way to make the most of this life. That's the way to enjoy this life the most. But I'm convinced that's not actually true. Listen to this. I, I, this. This really struck me this week. Um, one of my heroes, Tim Keller, I quote him. I'm going to quote him later. I quote him every Sunday. Um, 
But he, he's a hero of mine, a pastor in New York. And he was diagnosed a year and a half ago with pancreatic cancer and told he didn't have much longer to live. And he wrote this reflection in the Atlantic, just reflecting on how this has changed his outlook. And listen to this. This is, this is amazing. He says this. To our surprise and encouragement, my wife Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things, from sun on the water and flowers in the vase, to our own embraces, sex, and conversation, bring more joy than ever. Isn't that amazing? The less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. That's amazing. Here's the second thing the passage tells us. All the sad things of this life will become untrue. All the sad things of this life will become untrue. It's actually a quote from Lord of the Rings, but it's an important point. <laughs> Listen to Revelation 21, 3 through 5. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He will wipe the tears from our eyes, and there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Let's take, let's take this and apply it to marriage. Okay? If we're honest, this topic of marriage actually has led to a lot of suffering for a lot of you, haven't it? Hasn't it? It's led to a lot of suffering. For some of you, your deepest pain and hurts are tied up in this topic. Maybe it's a divorce that you feel defines you. This passage makes it clear that you won't be defined by that in the resurrection. Maybe it's your singleness that you feel like defines you. You won't be defined by that in the resurrection. We're not defined by our suffering we're not defined by our suffering. If you were in Christ, this is the worst it will ever be. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. And let me also just point out this. This is important. This is where I know I've got this wrong in the past. Even though the sad things will become untrue, that does not mean it is wrong to mourn or weep or grieve or lament in this life. Jesus himself models that for us, right? Remember Lazarus? This is, I love this story so much. It's been my story for this year. Remember, remember Lazarus? Here's Jesus weeping over the death of his friend, knowing full well that resurrection is about to come. This is what God has taught me the most in 2021. Um, I shared with you all, I think back in, back in April when I preached, that Allie and I had been through a miscarriage earlier this year. And then six months later, we actually went through another miscarriage. And so this has just been a, a rough year. Um, by God's grace, we, it seems uh, that we have a healthy baby boy coming in April of next year. So that's, that's good. He is, he is good. But let me just say this. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty young. We haven't been through much at this point. This has been a tough year. There's been a lot of weeping in our home this year. Um, yeah, 2021 has been very rough. But... Here's what I found. 
It's been a daily struggle to balance the grief we feel with the hope that we have. But I've also learned that those two things can coexist. I've never felt this much grief, but I've never felt this much hope. Right? And that's, that's the way of the Christian. As Christians, we can grieve with hope. We grieve because this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. But we have hope because it's all going to be made right in the end. Okay? So we grieve. We grieve. We weep. But we hope. But we hope. And here's more good news. Anyone can get in on this. Anyone can get in on this. Look at this. Here's Jesus' response. Verses 37 and 38. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So Jesus actually points out to the Sadducees that their interpretation of Scripture is wrong. They only believe the first five books. Well, he says, here's an example in Exodus, okay, the second book of God talking about the resurrection. Okay? So first of all, you're wrong. I, loved it. I was just studying the Matthew version of this, and they say this, and literally the first word in Greek is just Jesus going, wrong. Okay? Like, that's how he handles it. Wrong. You're right. You don't get it. You missed it. Okay? And it shuts them down. It shuts them down. It's, it, here's the thing. It's not smart to argue with God about God's word. Okay? He knows a little bit more about it than you do. But let me also point out, this is, this is big, let me also point out, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. Okay? They are alive. In the resurrection, we will stand and worship beside the heroes of the faith. That's what we have to look forward to. We will stand and worship beside the heroes of the faith. But let me point out one other thing. Even the heroes of the faith blew it over and over and over again. Okay? If you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible, let me give you an assignment today. Go home, just read Genesis. Look for the names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're going to be like, these guys? Okay? They do some good, but they do a lot of bad, right? They do a lot of bad. But here's what we see. They're sinners, just like us. And God isn't ashamed to be associated with them for all of eternity. That is good news, isn't it? There is hope for us all. Because if we're honest, so many of us can't shake the feeling that God is absolutely disgusted with us. Well, we can't see that's, the, that's not, that couldn't be farther from the truth. We serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sinners just like us. And God loves sinners just like us. Look at this from Dane Ortland. Listen to this. He says this. We cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. We serve an amazing God. Let's finish the story here. So Jesus shuts down the Sadducees, and this funny thing happens. He shuts down the Sadducees, and the scribes hear this exchange. They hear Jesus put the theological smackdown on the Sadducees, and they're pumped. They're pumped. And so the scribes, a little bit about them, they took the scriptures very seriously. 
They knew their Bibles inside and out, and they took holiness seriously, unlike the Sadducees, because they did believe in an afterlife, in a resurrection. So though they don't like Jesus, they like what just happened, right? It's true that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's happening here, right? And so they're piping up saying, yeah, get him, Jesus. Look at his answer. He turns to them, and it's not going to be good. Look at his answer, verses 39 to 47. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't have the time to do this text justice and I can feel my voice going away, so I'm going to kind of be quick here. I know my college group that meets in our house tonight is going to get on to me for this because I didn't adequately explain this, but it's okay. Um, let, me just give you, um, let me just give you kind of a general, general summary here of what Jesus is trying to say. I pointed out earlier that our eternal hope of resurrection is not based on our accomplishments. God is not afraid to be associated with sinners. And that is good news for us. Here's how Tim Keller put it. I'm so bad that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I'm so loved that Jesus was glad to die for me. So what's the scribe's problem? The scribe's problem is not that they're not biblical. Okay, They're very biblical. These guys know their Bible. They have it memorized. They know it inside and out. What they're lacking is humility. What they're lacking is humility. And because they know their Bible, because they're missing humility, they're actually missing Jesus. That's Jesus' point when he quotes the psalm in verse 41. He's saying, you know your Bible inside and out, but the one that the whole Bible is about is standing right in front of you and you're missing him. You know the Bible, but the whole thing is pointing to me and you can't see it. Because you lack humility. The Sadducees, they missed Jesus because of their hedonism. The scribes missed him because they were so religious. And that's scary for people like us, isn't it? (laughs) That you can miss Jesus while studying your Bible every day and going to church and doing all the things that you're supposed to do because you lack humility. This is a warning for us to check ourselves, isn't it? This is a warning for us to check ourselves. Are you humble in your approach to the scriptures? Are you teachable? Are you willing to be corrected? Because even earnest attempts to be biblical will lead to destruction if we don't come to the scriptures with humility. But as Christians, why wouldn't we be humble? Why would we not be the quickest people to admit where we fall short? I love this. Charles Spurgeon said, If any man thinks ill of you, Do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. (laughs) Like, like it's funny, but that's it, right? Like, that's it. We are, how can we be humble? Because I just told you, 
our eternity is secure, and it's not because of anything we've done. It's not because of anything that we've done. So we, are the, we should be the most humble people because Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve. And as I said, if you're in him, you are eternally invincible. So be humble, right? Be humble. The most attractive thing to God is not people who have their act together. It's people who have stopped acting, okay? That's what got the scribes in trouble. Be humble and be hopeful, okay? Be hopeful. As we go out, we should be the most hopeful people in Knoxville. And we should be the most humble people in Knoxville. So here's what I want to do. I knew I, I, knew I was going to have to cut this a little bit short. So here's what I'd like to do. Um, I want to just give us some time to pray. Okay? Like, let's just, let's just, I mean, I could go out and say, hey, pray for humility and pray for hope. and pray. Let's, just, let's just do it. Okay? So here's what I'd like to do. Um, if you're comfortable, find some people near you. Gather up. And just pray out loud. If you're not comfortable, totally fine. Just stick with yourself. That's, that's totally cool. But here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to just take four to five minutes here. And let's just pray. Okay? Let's just pray, first of all, that this hope, that we will actually be people who live this out and believe this. Okay? Because I'm preaching this, and now I'm challenged. I have to go out and actually live as if this hope is a true thing. Let's pray that we'll be those people. And let's pray that we will be humble people. We'll be humble people. When people see us, they'll say, that is a picture of the humility, the humility, humility that Jesus himself had.